to you, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Those three things are going to inform our outline this morning, right? We'll begin by considering a text of Scripture that uh, reveals significant themes in Peyton's own life and ministry. Then we'll follow that Hebrews 13:7 outline of remembering our brother John. We'll do that by considering a bit of his personal biography, his upbringing. Uh, second, we'll consider the outcome of his way of life, particularly through unique contributions that he uh, gave the church in his ministry. And then thirdly, we'll consider a few ways that we can imitate his faith in our own life. There's a bit of application. Hopefully there's some application throughout, but that last section will be geared specifically for that end. All right. Let's just quickly, not quickly, but let's begin by considering just a single verse of Scripture that I think uh, John Payton exemplified so well. So if you have your Bible or your handout, just turn and, and look to Psalm 27, verse 3. We'll spend just a couple minutes here. Psalm 27, verse 3. When you got it, let me hear you say, I got it. <laughs> I got it. All right, my Bible reads this way. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I'll read that one more time. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So initially I had planned to, for Peyton to work through Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission, as the grounds by which he was uh, made confident to leave his homeland of Scotland and travel to the other side of the globe, to the New Hebrides Islands, and give himself totally for the cause of seeing those people come to Christ. How that command of Christ, that I'm with you even to the end of the age, would cause him to uproot his life and to do that so sacrificially. But as I was reading uh, the sermon text that we'll actually hear this morning, Jeremy, our brother Jeremy, is going to be preaching from Psalm 27. As I read verse 3, and I had been pairing that with reading for John Payton, some of you who know about John Payton might know why this verse is so applicable to him. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Those things actually happened to John Payton. Yes, to King David, but also John Payton. So many of the islanders that he encountered at this point sought to take his life from him. But by God's grace and the gift of faith that was given to Payton, he was able to display, like King David, a type of courage and resolve that can only spring forth from an abiding peace with God. An abiding peace with God. The first verse of Psalm 27 gives us a couple of grounds for why we shouldn't fear and why we should have confidence or courage. Right, the first one is this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And the second is, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. 
those two grounds, they provide the Christian with this supernatural ability to endure trials, do they not? So though an army encamp against me, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So I'm not going to fear. And the war arise against me, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. So I shall not be afraid. I shall be confident. Or even just consider the words of our Lord Jesus in John 14, right? He's about to give the Holy Spirit as a gift. And before he leaves, he says this, perhaps some of the most uh, heartfelt words that he ever uttered to his disciples. He said this, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's interesting. He says, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Friends, I hope that as we consider John Payton this morning, that you might be both challenged and equipped to love and fear God more and to fear this world and all of its powers less that you might have confidence in God. All right, so now we're going to move to that next point in our handout, remembering uh, our leaders. This will be a bit of biography about Peyton. This will probably be the largest section of our time this morning. So if we get to the end of this point and you're gassed, it's okay. We're we're almost through the, the bulk of it. So John Payton was a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands of the South Pacific Seas. The New Hebrides received their name from the British captain James Cook in the 18th century, who, when he was on his second voyage, he spotted these islands and he said, these look like the Hebrides Islands of Scotland, so thus we have the New Hebrides. Other side of the world, but I guess they looked similar enough. These islands today are known as Vanuatu. So if you're looking at a globe or a map, it'll be, you'll see Vanuatu. You won't see New Hebrides, but you'll see Vanuatu. And just to kind of place them, if you were to draw a line from Honolulu, Hawaii to Sydney, about two-thirds of the way to Australia, right in the middle of the ocean, would be this series of about 80 islands. There are about 80 islands that comprise them. And today, there's somewhere about in the neighborhood of 180,000 people who live there, give or take. It was 1839 before any Christian missionary efforts were recorded in the New Hebrides. Seems like a long time ago now, but just imagine that 1,800 years had passed and not one person could name Christ. 18 centuries between the ascension of our Lord and the first ship arriving to carry gospel proclaimers. And friends, there are still people in the world today who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ explained to them. Let that inform your own prayers. That as we as a church seek to develop men and women, 
and train them that this might be on the forefront of our minds, that there are people in the world who have no access to the gospel. They have no access to even a written language. They have, and certainly they have no access to what we have in our hands every day. Help that to inform your prayers. But before we consider the life of John Payton, we must first take a brief moment and remember two particular men in general, or specifically, to give praise to God for. These were the first missionaries to the islands of the New Hebrides. Maybe you've heard these names, John Williams and James Harris. Has anyone ever heard of those names before? John Williams and James Harris. They were the first missionaries to step foot on the New Hebrides Islands. They, they stepped off the boat on the island of Aromanga, and within minutes of their debarkation, they were clubbed to death and eaten by cannibals. Within minutes. Peyton, in his autobiography, writes, Alas, within a few minutes of their touching land, both were clubbed to death, and the savages proceeded to cook and feast on their bodies. This all happened in the sightline of the ship that they came from, still in the harbor, so the men on the ship could see. Peyton writes this, Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs. And Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands for himself. His cross must yet be lifted up where the blood of his saints has been poured forth in his name. And you hear the heart of Peyton when he's writing here. The poor heathen knew not that they had slain their best friends in all the world. How do you think you'd react if the only two Christians to ever go somewhere were murdered and eaten within minutes of stepping foot on the island? Would you be the first to sign up to be their replacement? Probably not. Or would you perhaps bid them good riddance? Maybe there's a reason it's been 18 centuries and no one's come here. Would you be tempted in your heart to hate them? Praise God that this is not what John Payton did. He had the true love of a Christian. He gave his life to seeing the work of men and women and children coming to Christ and being saved by the grace of God. And by the end of his ministry on these islands, the, the island that received the most uh, time uh, of his per, uh, personal work and ministry, the island of Aniwa, the entire population turned to Christ. The entire island. When he arrived, he said, I knew not one Christian. And when he left, he said, I know not one unchristian, non-Christian. The hymn, sorry, I'm bringing a hymn in here, I know. My song is love unknown. It begins with this phrase. My song is love unknown. 
my Savior's love to me. This phrase is beautiful. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. This is a picture of those believers on the New Hebrides, is it not? To the world's eyes, they were savage cannibals who had proven themselves unworthy of salvation. But God, in his great kindness, performed a marvelous work of saving grace in their lives. And it's important to remember that when it comes to fitness for salvation, we are so much closer to the 19th century cannibals of the New Hebrides than we are to Jesus Christ. We are so much closer to the cannibals of the New Hebrides than we are to the perfect, sinless, righteous perfection of Jesus Christ. But praise God that his sufficient is, his grace is sufficient rather for the cannibals and us alike. Those two men, Williams and Harris, they died on November 20th, 1839. And Peyton landed on the island of Tana in 1858, just 19 years later. Naturally, before he left Scotland for his missionary appointment in the New Hebrides, he received a lot of opposition. Uh, people claiming that this uh, trip was too dangerous, right? So there was, quote, a dear Christian gentleman named Mr. Dixon who sought to dissuade Peyton from this, this endeavor. He always reminded him of the cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. That's what he said every time this was brought up. And Peyton replied finally, Mr. Dixon, let me find this slide real quick. There you go. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether or not I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. That's confidence in God. Peyton was a man who lived with his priorities in place and with an acute awareness of his own death and God's sovereign control over the circumstances of his death. Understanding you're going to die is one thing. But understanding that God orchestrates and determines precisely how you're going to die is a different thing. And he had both. Bit of biography. He was born in Dumfries, Scotland in 1824 to godly parents. And he died in Canterbury, Australia. It's near Melbourne. In 1907. He was 82 years old when he died. I think that actually might be a miracle in and of itself. This man lived to be 82 years old. And there were years, if not decades, of his life where his life was being threatened, perhaps daily. Praise God for the life that he lived. When he was a young man, he served as a city missionary in the city of Glasgow. He did that from the time he was 23 to 33 or 34, about 10 or 11 years he did this. And his ministry to the poor citizens of Glasgow was truly extraordinary. 
He regularly preached and ministered to six to seven hundred people a day for ten years. But the Lord saw it fit to interrupt this success and to implant a constraining desire within him to serve as a foreign missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He married his first wife, Mary, shortly before embarking on that missionary journey, that first missionary journey. He would serve the island of Tana for four years, and this is where he suffered countless hardships and very few victories. Within the first six months of being on the island, both his young wife, Mary, and their newborn son, who was born on the island, both passed from illness. He dug their graves with his own hands. He laid their bodies to rest near their home on Tana. He fled Tana, that island, after four years due to rising tensions and the outbreak of just tribal warfare that was making it impossible to do ministry on the island. So he sought to leave the island. After he left, he spent four years casting vision and raising support among his Presbyterian brethren in Australia and Britain concerning the need for more gospel workers in the South Seas, particularly the New Hebrides. And during this leave, he met and married his second wife, Margaret. They would be married and would minister together for 41 years. She predeceased him only by two years. Uh, it is told that they, have, that they had children, but his autobiography does not really include the number of children that they had. Uh, they had an orphanage on uh, the island of Aniwa that uh, they were involved with. And so they, while they might have not have had a certain number of biological uh, children, we don't know that number, they certainly were involved in the raising and the spiritual formation of many orphans. So yeah, while casting vision in Australia, Peyton Feld called to return to the New Hebrides, particularly the island of Aniwa, where this is a place where by the end of his ministry, the entire island had come to Christ. Peyton himself wrote, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. This is still resonating in the New Hebrides today, actually. So if you were to visit Vanuatu today, you'll find that about 80 to 90% of the citizens there would identify as Christians. Majority of those would be Presbyterian, thanks to the lasting influence of Peyton. So before we jump into the kind of the, the missionary stories of Tana and Aniwa, I'd love to consider one cause of Peyton's uh, formation and success in ministry that we perhaps wouldn't consider otherwise. And I'd, I'd like to just spend a moment considering his father. So as I was reading through his autobiography the past couple weeks, I slowly became convinced that I think James Payton is the hero of that story. I think so. He left an indelible mark on his son, which is evidenced in the fact that even at the end of his life, he spent time to recount the ways that his father had taught him. I don't say it lightly, I think James Payton might be the godliest man I've ever read about in a book. 
outside of the Bible. (laughs) One example of the faithfulness of James Payton uh, was in his church attendance. Payton writes, Dumfries was four miles from our Tortowald home, but the, tra- but, sorry, the tradition is that during all these 40 years, my father was only thrice prevented from attending the worship of God. Once by snow, so deep that he was baffled and had to return. Once by ice on the road, so dangerous that he was forced to crawl back up the Rook and Bray on his hands and knees after having descended it with many falls. And once by the terrible outbreak of cholera at Dumfries. Forty years, he walked four miles to and from the church house, and he only missed three times. And it was not because he had no desire to go, it was because natural forces kept him from going. He showcased the value of Christ to his family every week by simply taking them to church. He desired to gather with people who were purchased by Christ's blood. He did not consider it a burden, but a high privilege, an honor. Just take a moment. Are you convinced that attending our gathering this morning is a privilege and an honor? And a means by which you might be teaching your family, you might be teaching your friends that God is good and he's worthy of worship? Or is it a burden to you this morning? It's okay to feel that. Okay, to feel like it's a burden. But just take time. Even during this class, if you are considering that it is burdensome to gather with the saints today, just take this class to pray. Lord willing, this will be recorded. If you want to hear it later, you can hear it. But before we go in there, pray that the Lord would help you to recognize that what we do when we all gather together is a marvelous privilege Pray that you might sing boldly because we're free to do so. Pray that you might listen intently as Jeremy preaches. Pray that you might have deep communion and fellowship with Christ while we gather. Another way that James taught his children to love God was in the way that he prayed. The way that he prayed You know those kind of people that whenever they're praying, you just never want them to stop praying? James was one of those guys. Hear how he prayed. This is what John wrote about his father's prayers. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. 
and for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. As we arose from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the heathen world. Any of you fathers challenged yet? I used to look at the light on his face and wish I was like him. And all of that born out of the fervency of his prayer. I want to be that kind of dad. Don't you, fathers? Don't you want your son or your daughter to be able to look at you? How you pray, how you bring your whole soul before the Lord and want them to desire to emulate you insofar as you emulate Christ? So here's your invitation. If you ever see me, and I have a short fuse with Melody or with Elam, you can tell me, or just, just ask me the question, what would James Payton be doing right now? <laughs> Please. It'll sting, but I'll grow to love it, so... finish this section about his father with one final story. It's a bit longer than the previous quotes, so I'll set the scene quickly. John had, he's now uh, in his early 20s, maybe late teens, he's accept, been accepted to divinity school in Glasgow. In order to get there, just to get there, uh, he first had to walk 40 miles to the train station. He had to walk 40 miles to the train station. There he would board a, board a train to Glasgow and study for several years. Then he would be assigned to a ministry position uh, and would likely not be able to return for several years or perhaps ever again. No one knew. Would I see my son again? No one knew. James walked the first six miles of the journey to the train station with his son. This is what John recalled of that walk. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears on my cheeks are, tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever the memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carried his hat in hand while his long yellow hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayer for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, 
God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way. This is marvelous. I vowed deeply and oft, by the help of God, to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. Praise God that Peyton's life and ministry was a testimony of him keeping that vow. It ought to be our prayers that God would help us to be more godly role models and more thankful children. Okay, now we're going to move into that fourth point of our handout. But before we do that, I just want to take a moment and ask, are there any questions about the life? I'll do my best to answer any questions uh, or just comments, ways that he's been an, an encouragement to you, those of you who've read him in the past. I'd love to just take maybe 30 seconds, 60 seconds. So the question is, did Peyton have any other missionaries with him on the first missionary journey? I don't believe so. I'm not, I don't think, I think he and Mary went essentially alone. Um, they quickly saw uh, a few converts, like two. And then, so they kind of had a small community in that way, but no, in terms of like the, the ministry, like he was largely alone. And like we said, within four months of uh, being on the island, his wife passed from uh, ague, actually. So it's a, an illness, I think like an old illness. Ague, is that right? A-G-U-E. I read it in the book. That's all I know. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> yeah. If you have any other questions, I'll be happy to. Nick. Do you have any stories to tell about Clutha? Clutha. Yeah, so that is great whenever they were on the island of, it was on Aniwa when they went back. So they spent four years on Tana 
which was just full of hardships and trials. And they spent uh, four years kind of in Britain, Scotland, and Australia raising support, raising awareness about the, the missionary need on, uh, in the New Hebrides. And then they went to Aniwa, where they lived and served for at least 15 years straight. They, they spent 15 years and then kind of where he was in intermittently leaving, going to preach places, raise more support, do things. But yeah, in his autobiography, he writes, it's interesting, the ship they arrived on was named Clutha. And they brought with them from Scotland or Britain or wherever they would, it was a Scottish terrier, their dog. Uh, they brought Clutha with them. And it says in his autobiography that on multiple occasions, this, what did he say? The Lord used this creature as a fearsome tool <laughs> to like dissuade these people who were coming to like either beat down their door to come kill them or whatever it was. And, and he, would, he was typically right, like I would just go to sleep in my clothes because it had to be up in a moment's notice. And many times the Lord used this dog, this little Scottish terrier, to strike fear into the heart <laughs> of the islanders. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, so I don't know the full process of that, but I know that essentially there were kind of, what's it called whenever languages kind of meld together? So like they would refer to him as Missy, the missionary. So I don't know what that's called, but there was, uh, I don't know the exact process. I do know that by the end of his time on Aniwa, that he had developed a, uh, an alphabet they had, and he had translated uh, by the almost, I guess, 1889, I believe is when it was published, the entire New Testament in the Aniwan language. So, yeah, I wish I knew more about the process of him actually learning the language. Uh, Agu is malaria. So, sorry, I live in the 17th century. So. Anyway. Yeah. I think I would say similar things in that he, I think he was a convinced Calvinist. He was convinced of the sovereignty of God in all things, certainly in, um, I mean, he was, he was thoroughly reformed, if that helps kind of paint the picture. So he, he was trained in the Presbyterian church. Um, so it was not this kind of, uh, I have a lot of zeal and, you know, my theology is an inch deep, but I'm really on fire. He was, he was very convicted uh, of certain theological truths, um, mainly from just his decade worth of preaching ministry in Scotland before he left. So he was very convicted um, of Reformed truth, I would say. All right, let's keep moving forward. So now we're going to consider the outcome of the way of life of our brother. We're going to start first by just kind of considering some of the religious culture of the New Hebrides Islands. This might help us to inform some of the obstacles that he was facing uh, as he daily sought to, to care and minister to people. So this is what Peyton wrote about kind of the tribal animistic culture that he was working in. 
Their worship was entirely a service of fear, its aim being to propitiate this or that evil spirit, to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They deified their chiefs so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They exercised an extraordinary influence for evil. Is that Kloof out there? What's going on? Jeez. Uh, so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They exercised an extraordinary influence for evil, these village or tribal priests, and were believed to have the disposal of life and death through their sacred ceremonies. They also worshipped the spirits of departed ancestors and heroes through their material idols of wood and stone. They feared the spirits and sought their aid, especially seeking to propitiate those who presided over war and peace, famine and plenty, health and sickness, destruction and prosperity, life and death. This sums it all up. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear. And so far as I could ever learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy or grace. The islanders were an animistic people, about as animistic as you could be. Many of them were cannibals, eating the flesh of conquered enemies. They practiced infanticide as a means of appeasing these various gods or nefarious spiritual forces that were at work. They allowed the practice of widow sacrifice, meaning that, okay, a husband dies, he needs a wife to serve him in the next world, so we're just going to kill his wife. Peyton himself, however, noted a general willingness of the islanders to listen to his teachings, but he admitted that he struggled to believe that any of them would ever actually be able to cross that barrier of animistic beliefs to belief in Christ. He was discouraged about his ministry and he wrote this. The universal craving to know the greater and more powerful gods and to have them on their side led them, these were the islanders, whenever we could speak in their language, to listen eagerly to all our stories about the Jehovah God and his son Jesus and all the mighty works recorded in the Bible. But... When we began to teach them that in order to serve this almighty and living Jehovah God, they must cast aside all their idols and leave off every heathen custom and vice, they rose in anger and cruelty against us. They persecuted everyone that was friendly to the mission. It was the old battle of history. Light had attacked darkness in its very stronghold, and it seemed almost for a season that the light would finally be eclipsed and that God's day would never dawn. So what did Peyton do when he was faced with this kind of opposition? Did he just throw in the towel? Did he just consider the entire enterprise pointless? Did he try and board the closest ship and go home? No, he prayed for renewed zeal, and he began to work on those tangible things uh, that would support the ministry. So he learned the language. He, he formalized a written alphabet and a grammar system. He built orphanages on the island. He and his second wife, wife Margaret, were involved with raising dozens of orphans. Margaret taught women how to sew, to sing, to plate hats, and to read. 
They dispensed medicines to the sick and the dying. He translated, printed, and taught the scriptures to any who would hear. He published the New Testament in the Aniwan language in 1897. I spoke wrong earlier. It's 1897 when that was published. They held public worship services every week on the Lord's Day. And they trained converts and sent them to all the villages to preach the gospel. And so using these normal Christian rhythms of life and behaviors and these ordinary means of grace, what did the Lord do? Fifteen years later, the entire island of Aniwa had turned to Christ. All because of God's good pleasure to use regular Christian behavior and ordinary means of grace. And what impact did this have on missions as a whole in the South Seas? Peyton himself writes this. Oftentimes, while passing through the perils and defeats of my first four years on the mission field of Tana, I wondered why God permitted such things. We're going to learn something about the providence of God in this quote. But on looking back now, I clearly perceive that the Lord was thereby preparing me for doing and providing me the materials wherewith to accomplish the best work of all my life, namely the kindling of the heart of Australian Presbyterianism with a living affection for these islanders of their own southern seas. And in being the instrument under God of sending out missionary after missionary to the New Hebrides to claim another island and still another for Jesus, that work and all that may spring from it in time and eternity never could have been accomplished by me, but for first the sufferings and then the story of my Tana enterprise. By being willing to endure intense hardship and suffering for Christ's sake, not only was Aniwa claimed for Christ, but all of the New Hebrides and all of that region began to be reached. Work that was begun by Peyton over 150 years ago, started by him, is still bearing fruit in the South Seas. Remember, he was only the third missionary to ever set foot in the New Hebrides. And by the time of his death, he was 82, one of every six Australian Presbyterian ministers was going as a foreign missionary to the South Seas. Can you believe that? One of every six people who wanted to be pastors and were ordained to do so through the presbytery there in Australia were going as foreign missionaries to the South Seas. Praise God for John Payton. Okay, we're going to conclude. It'll be a little bit, but we'll conclude by considering some practical ways that we can imitate the faith of John Payton. I encourage you to spend some time this week just asking yourself this question. Do, do these application points, are they reflected in my life? Genuinely. You can even ask that question of a friend after this class. I might encourage you to do that.
Ask a friend, do these application points reflect in my life? The first application point I have for you, this is point five. Simply be ready for death. Be ready to die. Are you ready to die? I don't mean are you wanting to die. I'm not saying do you have a death wish. I'm saying are you ready to die? This is not a call to have a death wish, but rather it's a call to put your money where your mouth is when you say that you believe in the sovereignty of God over all things. When Peyton was being surrounded by men, some with clubs, some with spears, and some with muskets, he said this, God baffled their aim. He kept me alive. Then in the same moment, he said this, my heart, remember, he's surrounded by men seeking to take his life with clubs, muskets, and some have spears. They're ready to take his life. They're eager to. Peyton, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized, listen, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. Do you realize that? That until God is finished with you, until God chooses and determines to take uh, away that breath from you and you finally pass, until that point, He's sustaining you. I was immortal till my master's work was done with me. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoke that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held, vibrating to be thrown without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. What did Jesus say? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. What's the command after that? Fear not, therefore. For you are of more value than many sparrows. In order for you to have peace and effectiveness in this life, you must be concerned in preparing for your death. You must be praying that the Lord would make you more fit for heaven every day. You must pray that you would love holiness and righteousness more than you love this world's treasure. You must be seeking to do all this not from a place of works righteousness, not working to earn favor with God, but from peace that comes from trusting in God's sovereignty. He's got his hand on your life. And until he's done with it, you will remain alive. And when he's done with it, you'll enter into heaven. You'll enter into peace, into rest. 
So fear not. Another way to imitate the faith of Peyton is to pray fervently to the Lord. Pray fervently to the Lord. Peyton likened our prayers to a, a small child uh, who cries out to an attentive mother for help. He said this, Did ever a mother run more quickly to protect her crying child in danger's hour than the Lord Jesus hastens to answer believing prayer and to send help to his servants in his own good time and way so far as it shall be for his glory and their good. We ought to be a people that is regularly laying hold of God's willingness in prayer. God is willing to act on our behalf if we would take it to him in prayer. Lastly, and most crucially, Peyton teaches us that we must seek deep communion with Christ. We are to seek deep communion with Christ. I trust that most of you in this room are Christians, that you know Christ as your Savior. Perhaps your default kind of relation to God is that He's, he's the judge who's just pardoned your case. He's looked on Christ and he's forgiven all of your sins and credited you his righteousness. That's a marvelous place to, uh, a way to relate to God. However, you must make sure that your relationship doesn't just stop in the courtroom. Because we don't just have Christ as uh, a savior or as, as an advocate but we must have him as our friend. If you know Christ as your Savior and you know him as your advocate, but you don't know him as your friend, there's something wrong. Peyton notes the importance of communion with Christ in this way. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In his words, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, they became so real to me that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly even after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled against me. A real-life example of this fellowship with Christ amid terror is found in the story of a chestnut tree. This will be the last story before we close. So four years into his service on the island of Tana, Peyton was seeking to flee the island. All-out war had commenced, and heeding the advice of a few converted brethren on the island, Peyton sought to board 
a lone ship in the harbor that was setting sail for Australia. As he was waiting for nightfall at the house of some friends, he quickly was told that a cannibal chief and his men would soon be approaching, seeking to take his life. The friends told him to hide in a chestnut tree in the bush, away from the homes, so that it might seem as if he were not there. He begrudgingly obliged to do so. In his later years, he recounted the scene this way. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of the savages. Listen here. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet I was not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back on your own soul, he's talking to us now, if thus thrown back on your own soul, alone, all, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, if you're in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Do you have a friend who will not fail you when you're about to die? Let's pray.